Go ahead and open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, <clears throat> Matthew 26, and I'll begin reading in verse number 20, verse number 57. It's a lengthy chapter. I'll not be reading all of the chapter, but I will read Matthew 26, verse number 57, down to the end of verse number 64, Matthew chapter 26. Here we jump right into the middle of this narrative in which the Lord Jesus Christ has been held captive. He has been betrayed by one of his disciples who goes by the name of Judas. The guards have come. They have taken him away. And now he is going back and forth between trials of the Sanhedrin and and those of Roman governance as well. And this is where we enter into the narrative in verse number 7 we read... And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none at the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is this, what is it which these witnesses against thee, which these witness against thee, forgive me. Verse 63, But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity by your Holy Spirit's power to see the events as they transpire in this chapter, but Lord, that we would also see the intention of Peter, and Lord, that we would open our own eyes, empty me of myself, Lord, and Father, I need your help. I pray that you would give me clarity of mind and clarity of speech, and most of all, Father, I pray that those who have been away from you for too long, Lord, that you would draw them back. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. I am interested in this phrase that is found at the close of verse number 58. I've always found this phrase interesting. As Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in, he sat with the servants, but I want you to notice the intention of Peter. The intention as he followed Jesus The intention as he accompanied him into the high priest's palace, the intention of Peter as he sat with those other servants and observed uh, uh, that courtroom, if you will, the intention of of Peter was this in verse number 58, to see the end. This morning I would like to to preach a message entitled, The End. 
All of us are familiar with this idea. We tell our children nursery rhymes and bedtime stories and we reach the very last point of punctuation on that page and then inscribed and the blank space at the bottom of the story, the end. We're hard pressed to open a book and begin to read its pages without an anticipation of what will happen in the end. We start a movie and we watch the plot and its twists and turns, its protagonists and antagonists. And as we see this desperate moment closing towards the the end of the story, finally the hero wins, the bad guy loses. We see them riding off into the sunset on a trusty steed. And as the sun lowers in the sky, we see the words plastered on the movie, the end. And you know what I can't stand? When I don't know the end. Oh, I can't take it. If I'm reading a book and the plot is is complex and the characters have been developed and I'm wondering what's going to happen in the end. And unlike a movie where you got to fast forward or click, 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 click to get to the end and then rewind a little bit and see what's happening on a book, you can just go to the very end and just see what happens. And I have to fight that temptation. You know what? My girls cannot stand it when we're watching something and bedtime is encroaching upon the end of the movie and, and they don't get to finish it. We have to just turn it off and they go to bed and all oh, there's tears and wailing and gnashing of teeth, if you will. Why? Because they don't get to see the end. Daddy, what happens? I have no idea. The end. You know, the end is more than just something we pursue in entertainment, but in our own lives, we often look into the eyes of our children and wonder what they will become in the end. The end is a big deal to us. It's a big deal to Peter, and that's why he came watching to see the end. We have funerals at the end of life. These funerals, yes, they help honor our loved ones as we remember the sweet and precious times that they had. But if we would be honest with ourselves, the funeral services that we have are not entirely for the benefit of the loved ones that have gone before us, but instead they are for our own benefit. They are for our need for closure and so that we can express the things at the end that We did not have a chance or did not take the opportunity to express during the life. You see, the end is a valuable thing for us. We're always with our eyes looking to the horizon, wondering what will things be like in the end. In verse 58, we see Peter's intention. But Peter followed afar off under the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. This was the same thing that brought Mary to the tomb of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28. For in verse number 1 it says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. 
Notice that they did not come to that tomb that they might see in the sepulcher. They did not come to the tomb that they might even see Jesus. For they knew, or at least they thought they knew, that the tomb would be sealed. That the end had already come. And now, seeking closure for themselves, they were making this pilgrimage, if you would, to the place where Jesus' end had finished. And they wanted to give homage and respect and reverence to it. However, churches, believers, this is a great error. For we do not follow to see the end. We follow because he has overcome the end. Peter came to that place where he thought that Jesus would be crucified and died and that the end would have its last statement, that the story would have its conclusion. But as believers, we know that that was not the end. For Jesus in this very moment is still alive. And by the way, will be alive forevermore. Uh, we don't go to a grave or a cemetery there just on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem to see the end, but instead of a period at the close of the story, we see an exclamation point before the beginning of the very next chapter. For when we see God, we do not see the end. We see eternity. Oh, and this is a great error. When we read the historical narrative and forget that he still in this moment maketh intercession for us right now in the presence of the Father. We pour all of our investments into this life because we think that when our last breath has been breathed, that that is the end, but it is not. In fact, this is not even the most significant part of our life. This will not even be the most remembered part of our life. This is not the most powerful part of our life. This is not the part of our life in which we have the most opportunity. This is nothing but the pregame show. We are nothing but an opener for the main event, which is a place and a time called eternity. This is not the end. And I don't know if you noticed, but I'm kind of excited about it. I would like to point out some things in this passage. Some reasons, if you will, of why Peter was wrong. Of why Caiaphas was wrong. Of why Pilate was wrong. Of why the Sanhedrin were wrong. Of why, why those that were full of religious practice but yet lacked religious faith. Of why they were so wrong. Some may say dead wrong. It's because they were confused about the end. And I want to show some reasons why they were all wrong. And why this was not the end. This was not the end because of this. If I look at verse number, oh, I've got to turn my page back over. If I were to look over at verse number uh, 20 or 59, I'm sorry, if I were to look at verse number 59, uh, the Bible says this, Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. They thought it was the end because they, they thought that death was the end. Because when others see death, 
we must be reminded that first off, he is the life. We're wrong about the end because we're wrong about death being the end. He has overcome death. He has overcome the final moment of life. He has overcome our punishment. You see, in verse number 59, we see that the entire force of all of Judaism was mounted against Jesus. The chief priest was coming against Jesus. The elders were coming against Jesus. The council was coming against Jesus. The false witnesses were coming against Jesus. If you were to read farther, you would find that Rome was coming against Jesus. The most powerful military in all of the earth was stationed to be a century and a guardian that his grave would not be disturbed. Every power on earth and in hell was against Jesus. And they thought that death would be the end. And they forgot what Jesus said about himself. He said to Mary and those outside of Bethany when Lazarus had died, he reminded them there in that place when death was so thick and present in the air, it was palpable. You could cut it with a knife. Everyone was thinking about the death of Lazarus. And Jesus, when Jesus stepped in, he reminded him, reminded them that he, Jesus Christ, was the resurrection and the life. He reminded them that he was there to bring life, that they might have life, and that they might have life more abundantly. And friends, I want to remind you that the end is not death, for Jesus has already overcome death. And all of the forces that tried to instill and maintain and keep death in his body failed, and up from the grave he arose. And I'll remind you for the same. That Jesus is able to overcome your death as well. You see, this isn't the end because his life did not end with death. And the, the death that we experience in this life, it is not the end. For yes, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That last date on our tombstone, it is not a marker of our end, but instead it is only a marker on, it is only a mile marker on the journey that we make from this life to that. It is a reminder of the time in which someone went from being on this life to their appointment with God. And if you are not ready for that appointment, let me remind you that he has paid for your sin. He has offered you life. If you would just receive him as your savior, you could have eternal life for yourself. You see, this was not the end. Because when others see death, he is the life. I'll say this as well. This was not the end. Not just because he was the life. Because he is the truth. You know, the Bible tells us when... And Jesus responds and says to his disciples, he tells them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
It seems like we have a great problem with truth in our culture and in our world today. Everybody is trying to figure out what truth is. We pretend like this is a new thing, but it's not. It's been going on for the ages. And uh, what was it that the Sanhedrin and the chief priest and those that were conspiring against Jesus, what was it that they attempted to do in order to crucify the Lamb of God? And they, detri- they did their best to distort and to, to take away from the truth of the moment. Look with me if you, <coughs> if you would at verse number 60. In verse number 60, it tells us, But they found none, yea, though many false witnesses came, yet yet found they none at the last two false witnesses. In verse number 61, and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. There's some interesting things I would like to point out about these false witnesses. As they function a lot like the godless false witnesses in our culture, in our politics, even in our classrooms today. As they are full of falsehood and full of contradiction. I noticed that in verse number 60 it it says that, that many false witnesses came. Many of them. You know, if you were to stack them up, you would have one man, Jesus Christ, on one side of the argument. And then you have what is described as, as, as many, a, a great number of people that were speaking falsely against him. And here we are so used to the power of democracy, aren't we? The power of the vote. The popular vote as uh, the most people choosing one candidate wins. The most people choosing one platform is successful. The most people finally choosing one Speaker of the House as the Speaker of the House. We're used to this idea that the majority rules. And sometimes it causes our discretion to be clouded and for us to come under the assumption that the majority determines what is right. When friends, that's not the case at all. The majority has been wrong many of the times, and I might even say this, since wide is the way that leadeth to destruction, I would say that the majority is most often wrong. And here we have many false witnesses that have come against Jesus. It reminds me of the many false witnesses who try to convince us that God is not true and that when we breathe our last breath here on this earth, that 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 is the end and this life is all we have. And when we are committed to the grave, we dissolve like dust, never to breathe again, never to live again. One of the most frightening things is after I die on this earth, which by the way, I will die on this earth and so will you if the Lord tarries. One of the most frightening things is to imagine that when that day were to come that I would never have another conscious thought again that my existence is incomplete as the Buddhist would teach in complete annihilation. Gone. 
that every successive generation that would live on this earth, that I would have no thoughts of them and my memory would only last as long as the generations who knew my name and three or four generations from where I stand today, my memory is totally gone. No one knows me. Nothing I did ever mattered. And since I'm gone and can never come back, I can't do a thing about it. That is the narrative of the false witnesses today. And why were there so many there that were willing to enter into this room? Perhaps they were motivated because they did not like the message that Jesus preached. No doubt that was the reason that the chief priests and the Sanhedrin were there. For they had propped themselves up and had obtained power because of the way the current religious structure was. And Jesus came to tear those things down and to replace every um, element of man-made religion with the power of of his word that man would no longer need priests to go through to get to God for we who have received Christ are priests unto ourselves and he is our high priest there in heaven and all they were motivated by a certain number of things why because some of them did not like the message of Jesus Christ and there's still some false witnesses in the world today and they are so loud and they are so confederate together against us because they do not like the message of Jesus. They don't like the message that he is the only way to heaven and instead they propagate the idea that there are many ways to heaven. But Jesus himself said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. He says in the book of Acts that neither is there salvation in, in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Understand that Jesus' message is a message of love. Jesus' message is a message of sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But listen very carefully. Jesus' message is an exclusive message. You must come by the way of the cross or you cannot come at all. You must come admitting that you are a sinner or you cannot come at all. You must come believing that he is God and besides him there is none else where you cannot come at all. You must come believing that it is not by your works of righteousness which you have done, for your works of righteousness are nothing but filthy rags. But you must believe that it is only by the finished work of Christ. And there are many false witnesses gathered against this man, Christ Jesus. Why? Because they did not like his message. Sounds familiar in the world today. There are many false witnesses that have come against Jesus Christ because they do not like his message. And friends, be reminded no matter how much the world does not like this message, it does not alter its truth. And just as those many false witnesses came against Jesus, they were convinced that this could be the end. It's the end of it. We're going to end Jesus. We're going to end his message. We're going to end his work. 
I can imagine after this meeting as the chief priest cast Jesus out knowing that finally they had him. I can imagine him sitting back in his seat with a sigh of relief. I don't have to listen to the multitudes ask about his miracles anymore because Jesus is done. We finally ended it. We don't have to listen to his words anymore because this is the end. And they were so convincing in their efforts that even Peter, a follower of Jesus, followed afar off to see the end. But friends, you cannot kill the truth. And this was the problem the false witnesses had. I love the way that it describes that it can be a tad bit confusing, I will admit. For in verse number 59, it says, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Wait a second, I I thought that there were many that came to bear witness against him. Yes, uh, look at the continuation of verse number 60. Though many false witnesses came, yet yet found they none. What on earth does this mean? Were there many or were there none? What it's saying, if we were to compare this with the other gospels, we'll read in Mark chapter 14, verse 56, for many bear false witness against him. In other words, many of them came. And and from Mark's perspective of this, he takes account in the same thing that Matthew does, that many false witnesses came against him. And as where Matthew says they found none, Mark explains why they found none. Though many came to bear false witness against him, Mark says this, Mark 14, 56, but their witness agreed not together. They could not find a witness that was false that was also true. Well, duh. <laughs> you, could, you cannot find a witness that's false that's entirely consistent. And is that not what we see in the false narrative of this world? They say that God did not create the heavens and the earth, and he certainly didn't do it in six literal days. So they come up with this theory of, of evolution and this inception of it from the Big Bang. But yet, does not that contradict the very laws of science themselves that matter cannot create, be created or be destroyed? but instead it is eternal as if it were and if internal eternal then where did it come from and what was the progenesis of matter itself you see even within the scientific community there's all kinds of contradiction within their false witness within the cultural community they say that if you want peace and acceptance look within and embrace your identity They're teaching girls to be boys and boys to be girls because they feel either less masculine or or more feminine inside, whatever that means. They say, oh, if you just embrace this identity, you'll find peace, you'll find joy, you'll find happiness. But haven't we discovered that is an utter lie and a contradiction and it's killing our kids. It's causing them to be thrown into great great trials of depression and anxiety because they don't know who they are. Because the witnesses who have told them, oh, just have a surgery and you'll be fine. And now that the real studies are coming out, we're discovering that this is the worst thing that we could have done. Why? Because their witness is false. They've tried to kill the truth of the Bible 
by their false witnesses. They tried to kill Jesus Christ in the same way because of their false witnesses, thinking that that would be the end. Well, friends, it's not the end. It'll never be the end. And the reason that it's not the end and it'll never be the end is because he is the life and because he is the truth. And the only way to be set free from all of those false witnesses is to take the words of Jesus Christ to heart. For if ye want to know the truth, I will tell you that only the truth can make you free in what John, in what Jesus said in John chapter 8 when he said this. He said, ye shall know the truth and the the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Friends, this whole world is in bondage, and they don't realize it. They're enslaved, and they don't know it. They've got shackles of iron around their ankles, and they can't hear the clinking of the steel as they walk. I would imagine. I would imagine that there's some, even in my presence right now, right here in the church, and you're enslaved by the false truth that you have accepted. You're enslaved by conflicting witnesses. And you are torn to shreds about it. You can't find any peace. You can't find any joy. And all you find is the inconsistency of the narrative that has been fed to you. That God is not real. That you will not answer to him. And you have tried to find peace with God. Even though you believe that God does not exist. Friends, if you want to be set free, you've got to know the truth. And those same men that Jesus was speaking to in John chapter number 8, they didn't see their own chains. And Jesus said, they are there. And here's where they are. The very next verse, John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. You see, friends, sin does not just affect our actions. But in a much deeper way, it affects the way we think. It does not just affect those lustful and wicked and bitter and angry thoughts that we think, but it, it affects the very processes of our mind and whether or not we value the Word of God and value the truth of God. And these men in Matthew 26 were so convinced that they could bring about the end by this false narrative that they went through every length. They broke their own laws. They bent their own false morality believing that the end will justify the means. But they were so wrong. Because you cannot put an end to Jesus. Because he is the life. Because he is the truth. The truth. I read further in this passage and I come across some dialogue. And there's a lot that could be said about the one phrase that Jesus says here as recorded in Matthew. I'm going to try to be disciplined with our focus here. As we focus on their misconception of the end, Peter's misconception of the end, and our 
misconception of the end. But we read this as we look back through the narrative of this story. In verse number 58, we read, But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. And here's what Peter sees. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. But found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against, which these witness against thee? You know, whenever I read narrative portions of the Bible, I like to just picture myself in the crowd of those people sitting there right beside Peter. I can feel his nervous anxiousness for concern that they might discover that he is one of the disciples of the man on trial. He blends in, and as we sit beside him, we, quite frankly, try to blend in as well. But with narrow focus, we're looking upon the face of Jesus. We see the vehement anger of the high priest as his blood begins to boil. We see the redness of his face. He begins to shout and the spittle comes out of his mouth like an angry Baptist preacher. And verse number 63, I love this. But Jesus held his peace. Now, this isn't the point of the message, but every now and then it's just good to see how Jesus responds to things. Now, this is just a little extra, but just because someone's yelling, screaming at, at you doesn't mean you got to yell and scream back and make a fool of yourself. But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Well, he's pushing him now, isn't he? And Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. You know, that's a statement of agreeance, right? You said it. Son of the living God, I'm the Christ. I'm standing right in front of you. But Jesus, in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, knows that that statement's not the end. Oh, no. The way of Jesus Christ does not end with man dictating the terms. It ends with God dictating the terms. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, man, I love that phrase. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And what is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying, No, this isn't the end, high priest. This isn't the end, Sanhedrin. Hey, Caiaphas, this ain't the end. I can imagine him looking over at Peter saying, it's not the end, Peter. You don't believe it either as he looks over with his eyes. This is not the end. And I'll tell you why it's not the end. It's because I'm the life. You can kill me. You can kill this body, but I'm coming back. Yeah, you can arrange false witnesses against me, but that won't be the end because they're not the truth. I'm the truth. My name is Jesus Christ, and I come in the power of the living God. I am the living God. I am the truth. I am the light. And then he says, and one more thing. This isn't the end because it's my way. I am the way. 
And here, as we look at the end, let us be reminded that the end will not come on our terms. The end will not come on the terms of whoever sits in the White House. The end will not come on the terms of whoever has the mightiest army or the greatest amount of money. They will not be the ones setting the terms. They might be setting the terms right now. They might be using their influence in this day and age. But I tell you, there's only one that gets to set the terms at the end of this life. And there's only one that gets to set the terms at the end of this world and at the end of this age. And his name is Jesus. And that is his way. I want you to know that God always does things his way. He always does things his way. He always does things his way. Let me tell it to you one more time. He always does things his way. And you can either choose to get on board with his way, or you can choose to stand in front of the freight train. Now, I realize that in the Bible, it does not liken Jesus Christ to a freight train. But what Jesus is saying to this arrogant prideful high priest as he holds his peace and as God himself robed in flesh listens to this man as the Bible says adjure thee by the living God what blasphemy to invoke the very power that flows in Jesus veins against him Jesus says in verse 64, here is my way. Thou hast said, in other words, I am the Christ. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. I want you to notice just a couple things about his way and then we'll be done this morning. You know, his way is a very personal way. His way. He deals with us individually. You see, that's why you can't trust in your grandmother's salvation to save you. Parents, that's why we can't trust in the decisions we make for the Lord to save our children, but instead we must instill in them the things of God that when they're old and older and can make their own decision that they choose Christ. But God deals with us His way. It's very personal way. Look at verse 64. Jesus said unto him, notice the personal pronouns used here. Thou hast said, nevertheless I say unto you. Who is that? That's Caiaphas. That's the high priest. I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of God the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He told this man, one day you're going to see me. You're going to see me again. And he's speaking to him personally. And would you just let God to, to speak with you personally this morning? When you get up from the pew this morning and you walk out, it will not be the end. 
It will not be the last time you hear from Jesus, nor will it be the last time you see him. It won't be the last time that you feel his presence. And whether you be with him or whether you be against him, you will see him again. And he will have it his way. Did you know the Bible describes our death like this? As an appointment. It is, an, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. That is his way. That when we die on this earth... We will see him. And we will either see him as a sinner who never received him or we will see him having been saved by him. You see, God's way is a personal way. Here's another reason why his way means this isn't the end. It's not just personal, but it's powerful. Notice what he says. That was said, nevertheless, I say unto you hereafter, ye shall see the man, man, the son of man, sitting on the right hand of power. The right hand of power. When we come into the presence of God, we are coming to one who has all might and all power. Power to save by the blood of his son. For we know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. But also power to condemn. For everyone that stands before God having never received Christ will be condemned to an eternity in the lake of fire. Is that because I like it that way? Not necessarily. But that's because that is the way God has ordained. This is the truth. He is the life and this is the way. And when you think, no, it's the end. No more. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because it's his life, his truth, and his way. For some, we rejoice in it. That Jesus wins again and has power to overcome all. But for some that may be here with us this morning who've never received Christ, can I invite you to listen to what God has told you this morning and come In a moment, we're going to bow our heads and close our eyes and you'll have a chance to respond to what's been said this morning. And I would invite you to come. And here's what I mean by that. If the Lord has spoken to you and convicted you and you realize that you need to be saved, that that you need to be forgiven of your sin, you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, then here in a moment when we bow our heads and close our eyes, I would invite you to slip out from your seat and come forward. We won't embarrass you. We won't call you out. uh, We won't make it hard on you whatsoever. But we would love to show you His truth, how you can know for sure, without any doubts, that you're on your way to heaven. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Amen. So would you please come?